The New Testament reading from the lectionary for this uh, Sunday, the seventh Sunday in the season of Easter, the Sunday before Pentecost, uh, continues in 1 Peter, but it gives us two separate readings. So uh, follow along uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the grace of God, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Reading the New Testament isn't for the faint of heart. Our temptation is to read the scriptures as God's personal love letter. We've we've heard that before. The Bible is God's personal love letter to us. And there's a measure of truth to that. But I think far too often we take that notion of Bible as God's love letter to us and reduce the scriptures and reduce its message to a guidebook for what the sociologist Kristen Smith calls a moralistic therapeutic movement. The bargain in moralistic therapy is pretty straightforward. God, you keep the bad stuff away and I'll come to church on Sunday. Do a really good job, God, and I'll tithe. Do an outstanding job, God, and I'll consider serving on a committee. Would be tempting, it is tempting, to read 1 Peter as a tract for moralistic therapy. After all, he's writing to exiles, to refugees, to people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. He's, he's writing to the wounded, not, not, to, not to us who have our act together, to us who have figured it out, to us who, who, who know what to do, who know how to function in society. He's writing to people who are the walking wounded. And so it would be very tempting for us to simply pivot and read 1 Peter as a book of therapy, 
book of, if God, if we're nice to God, God will be nice to us. But that misses the point. And before I go any further, I want to say thanks to Jaden this morning for running the PowerPoint. You're doing a marvelous job. God's call to us has never been an individualistic project. God's call isn't about making you and me the best people we can possibly be. God's call invites individual reformation of life, but always, always for the purpose of identifying in and with a community. God's project is to make us a people. God's project is all of creation knitted together to create an environment where we live in community with each other. Now, when I say the word community, all kinds of images flash for us across this congregation. Uh, Fifty or so of us who are gathered here this morning, there are probably 60 different viewpoints uh, on community. Everything from living intentionally together with a common purse to occasionally letting somebody speak into my life and kind of everything in between in that continuum. Peter's call is to people who have been forcibly removed from the way of life they were used to, whose life has taken on a sudden and abrupt change. And he says to them, it isn't about finding your individualistic way in the world. It's about forming a new society. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 unpacks a vision for that, a vision that we've so warped in our Western reading that we, that we as Christians, tend to put that reading out there. You are a new people, a chosen race, a holy people, we tend to read that as if we are somehow morally superior to the rest of the world. And that's not Peter's point. Peter's point is that you can't handle life without community. If I could do a Jack Nicholson, I would. <laughs> but that's, that's what he's driving at, is that this faith, this following Jesus is impossible to do by yourself. And so he calls us to what some theologians and scholars have called a contrast society. The older some of us get, the more we are used to medical tests that involve contrasting dyes. <laughs> they get injected into our body and then read in real time to see if there's a problem. We are called to be that kind of agent in the world. The church is a contrast society, a, a different stripe to point out society's ills, to make society stronger and better. And so Peter unpacks in these two passages what a contrast society might look like. And he begins in chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, 
with simply reminding us that a contrast society expects difficulties and welcomes challenges. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeals you're facing. A contrast society will be misunderstood. My, my dad, who was in the army for years, had a favorite saying. He said, any order that can be misunderstood will be misunderstood. And when he had a son, he experienced that in a whole new way. You know, any directive from my dad that I could misunderstand would be misunderstood. Contrast society that Peter's envisioning says that there are going to be challenges. There are going to be ordeals. There are going to be upsets and difficulty and pain. A moralistic, therapeutic reading of this text seems masochistic. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come upon you, but rejoice. Rejoice when bad stuff happens to me? That's pretty lame, Peter. That's our, that's our 21st century reading, frankly. That we think Peter's a bit of a wingnut for suggesting that we, who would, who would come to church every Sunday, should expect difficulty in our life. That's not part of the bargain. But Peter says contrast society is always going to look different. And it's always going to run into trouble. Contrast society understands that the wider public will not always understand us. In 252 AD, the city of Carthage in North Africa experienced what really was a pretty much an annual problem. The rains would come, Carthage had a terrible drainage system, and cholera would break out. Dreaded disease, a fever, would take lives. Well, the rich had their way of escape. They would simply go to their mountain villas, the mountains surrounding the city of Carthage down in the valley, and they'd simply wait it out. They'd, they'd wait through the spring, the wet spring and the hot summer until the cool fall air began to blow down from the Atlas Mountains, and the cholera would break, and they'd come back and resume their normal behaviors. In the spring of 252 A.D., the cholera epidemic broke out in Carthage yet again, but this time, Christians in the city, about 20% of the population, as best we can tell, stuck around. And they began to care for cholera patients, sometimes catching the disease in the process, but caring for them. Moistening their foreheads with rags to try to break the fever, keeping fluids pumped into their system, praying for them. And taking over public spaces, villas, and plazas to tend to the sick in this epidemic. Well, when the cool fall winds came and the fever broke and the rich came down from their mountain villas, they discovered 
that there was the usual pile of dead bodies that needed to be dealt with, but there was also a city full of Christians. Not because the church had an evangelistic strategy in their hip pocket to break out when disease hit, but because the sick and those who couldn't escape to the mountains because they weren't wealthy enough and stayed in the city saw the amazing love of a contrast society. They saw Christians not abandoning the sick but engaging not passing the buck off to others, but caring for those in the midst of a fever. In our own city, there are churches who, out of their own offering plate dollars, take the time and energy to prepare meals for those who are living rough in the city for those who, who need a home but don't have one. It doesn't solve the problem. We can argue the social public policy issues of whether simply caring for cholera victims is the right thing to do or fixing the darn drainage system is really the call of the church. And we can also argue whether feeding those who are living rough deals with really providing homeless solutions or not. We can have that argument. But what we can't do is turn our back on people who are hungry. Turn our back on people who haven't had a meal. And yet, there are churches in this community that face the wrath of neighborhood groups who are concerned that, well, having drug addicts in our neighborhood and you're having you know people who are going to who have mental health issues and yes it's exact because those are the people who are without homes in our community what do we do just ignore them what does a contrast society do do we simply raise money for nonprofit charities? Do we demand justice? Or do we find ways of contrasting the values of the world, which is to take the problem and sweep it away? I have sat in neighborhood meetings where people have said to our police department, you should pick up homeless people and drop them off in Moreno Valley. That's the solution. I have sat in meetings in other communities in across Southern California, in the city of Downey, where I once worked uh, in our offices in the Mennonite Church. I went to a community meeting where the police were proud of the fact that there was no homeless problem in the city of Downey but that Southgate, the neighboring community, had a huge problem because the police would pick up the homeless, take them to Southgate, and drop them off. We don't, what does a contrast society do? I, I don't have the public policy answers. I'm, I'm, I'm not that smart. I, I, I don't know. 
but I know that our challenge as the people of God is to start with who's in front of us. The Benedictine movement. St. Benedict himself said that no matter what hour of the night somebody knocked on the door of the monastery, you were to open it, and that person on the other side of that liminal space, that person was Jesus. Do we see people in crisis in our lives as problems to be solved or as a Jesus to love? Peter reminds us that a contrast society will always, always struggle. That once we solve an issue, there will be another one, and another one, and another one. The contrast society that Peter envisions is not meant to be crisis-free. It is instead to be not surprised and to rejoice. Peter then exhorts this contrast society in chapter 5 to, to practices. We, we, we can read 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9 as a set of things we ought to do. Shoulds and oughts. I think Peter is instead inviting the contrast society of the church to a set of practices, to a certain kind of spiritual stance. He says, humble yourselves. Cast, toss your anxieties. Be alert and sober. Resist. These aren't just behaviors. They aren't just boxes that we tick in a did I do the right thing or the wrong thing kind of exercise. They, they call us to spiritual practices. Humility is, is a spiritual practice. Not, not self-abasement for the sake of self-abasement. Again, that's kind of moralistic therapy at work. But a sense of I'm in this together with others. We share life. That one's agenda is not higher than another's agenda. And the only way we know that is if we share with each other. Humility requires community. Casting our anxieties on him because he cares for you requires a spirituality of trust that if we actually cast our anxieties on God, that we can live without fear. That that, that that fearlessness is possible. Sobriety of life, being alert and of sober mind, being, being aware that there is evil in the world. Being aware that there, that there, are, that there are bad choices being made. And pivoting back to verse 7, casting 
our anxieties on him because he cares for us. To not live in fear of evil in the world, but to be alert and sober about it. And to resist. To resist the devil, our enemy, the personification of evil. And by extension, the evil he perpetrates in the world. Peter isn't calling us to be people who are uptight and kind of, you know, sucking on lemons all the time. He's calling us to a set of spiritual practices that have us live with our eyes wide open to the world and deal with the world as it is so that the world as God intends it to be can be ushered in. Because that's where he's going in verses 10 and 11. With a doxology, a a call for the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That God is the one who seeks to restore us. And we are promised in that restoration to be made strong and firm and resolute because the power belongs to him, not us. Peter's call to the exiles is is not a call that simply invites us to act nice. It's a call that invites us to be engaged in the world. It invites us into what I would call the ordeal of change. That cartoon up there, the caption says, I'm, I'm willing to make some lifestyle changes as long as I don't have to do anything different. <laughs> Clearly I've said that to my doctor on more than one occasion. But to be a contrast society invites us to profound change in our lives. In in Peter's writing, I think it calls us to three very specific changes. First, it calls us to a joy-filled life of discernment. Now, we don't often put joy and discernment together. But Peter does, because Peter recognizes the wilderness is a given. Beautiful image, Nikki. Thank you for that. Exile is our lot in life. Following Christ daily in life means we live as strangers and aliens and refugees and exiles in this world that things don't quite fit. A little bit like buying clothes at Target. They don't quite fit. They fit well enough, maybe. But life doesn't quite fit in the contrast society as we contrast it to the world. And so we are called to a life that's full of joy, but also capable of discernment, capable of understanding what we're experiencing and being joyful nevertheless. Annie Lamont's newest book is entitled, with a title that I learned as a young teenage Christian, Praise the Lord anyhow. We are called to be a people who, in spite of 
what we experience in spite of, not because of, but in spite of, in spite of the Manchesters of our world, we still praise the Lord. Not because we think God's hand was in a suicide bombing, but because without joy there is no discernment. There is only withdrawal and denial and the pushing away of others. We can't live in community without joy. We can't live in community without the capacity to laugh at ourselves and certainly at each other. Without that capacity, we have no community. And without community, we have no discernment. A joy-filled life of discernment. I think Peter also calls us to a steadfast life of resistance. Resistance is one of those hot-button words these days. We don't, we don't quite know what to make of it. Resisting, Peter says, is resisting the devil's work, the one who would devour us like a roaring lion. And so resistance isn't, isn't aimed at a political platform or, or at a public office holder. Resistance is aimed at that which is anti-gospel, at that which is anti-Christ. See joy-filled life of discernment. Steadfast life of resistance occurs not by disengaging from the world, but by engaging. The political term for this has often been to become a happy warrior, a drum major for justice is what Dr. King called it to gladly go forth and call the larger society to the contrasting values of the gospel. To go forth not in anger or hatred or fear or shame or guilt, but to go forward in joy and say, these truths we hold. This good news is ours. That's how we resist the one who would devour us. And then thirdly, the ordeal of change happens in a trusting life, resting in God's power. The prophet Zechariah said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And there's a great quote from some of my more libertarian friends. It goes, if it is to be, it is up to me. And there may be a grain of truth in that. But for us to be a contrast society, if it is to be, it is up to us. We must figure out how to join hands. We must figure out how to link arms. We must figure out how to have the arguments with one another, the family feuds, and figure out how to move forward. Those are our challenges. 
They come from a life that rests in God's power, not in our power, in God's capacity, not in our capacity. So this morning, some questions for us to think about. How do we rejoice in the midst of ordeal? How do our sufferings participate in the sufferings of Christ? Are are we only suffering first world problems? Maybe we're engaging in a great adventure and missing the point. Are sufferings deeper than that? Is our pain the pain of Jesus? Is our joy the joy of Jesus? How do we resist evil as a global family of believers? How how do I, in Riverside, California, stand with my brothers and sisters in Congo, thousands of whom have gone into hiding because of the civil war there, civil war that's claimed the life of the son of a dear friend of mine? How do we do that? I don't know. I don't have those answers all by myself. That's the kind of stuff we ought to be talking about. How do we move forward? How do we link arms with a global church? I was at the Lutheran church in Beit Zahor, Bethlehem in Palestine, on a Sunday morning. There were about 25 Palestinian Christians there, and there were about 30 German Christians there because the pastor had done an internship in a German Lutheran church and they had delivered an organ to that congregation. And I thought of all the quaint little things to deliver to a church in Palestine, (laughs) an organ. Hmm. Maybe a little bit like, you know, giving the Red Cross your winter coat for hurricane relief. I don't know. But... Here were 30 German Christians. And here was a group of us at the Christ at the Checkpoints conference, about 20 of us North American Christians. And the pastor of this Palestinian church, this wise, young Palestinian preacher of the gospel, looked at the Germans in the audience and the Americans and the Canadians, and he says, don't forget us. Whatever you do, don't forget us. Go home and tell our story. Go home and say you met Christians here. We've been trying to follow Jesus in this land for 2,000 years. Don't forget us. And if that's all we do, maybe that's enough, that we simply don't forget that the gospel of Jesus is a global phenomenon and that The good news of Jesus isn't that he's going to make everybody Americans. (laughs) I don't know. I could be wrong. But how do we resist evil as a global family of believers? With a global vision. How do we trust God to make us strong, firm, and steadfast in the midst of our ordeals? We think that we ought to be strong and firm and steadfast in the, midst, in the midst of our ordeals so that God will trust us. 
But that's not what Peter says. How do we trust God to make us strong and firm and steadfast in the midst of our ordeals? One more thing. Word of William Penn, the great uh, Quaker founder of Pennsylvania. God is better served in resisting a temptation to evil than in many formal prayers. Now, brothers and sisters, we can read that quote and we can make it moral therapy, moralistic therapy in our lives. We can individualize it. We can say, oh, I, I wasn't bad there, so I did good. But I'd invite us to read that in community. God is better served in the ways we resist the temptation to conform to this world. God is better served in our resistance than in our formalities. First Peter's not for the faint of heart, and I, for one, am grateful that we have come to the end of this book. <laughs> because this, this letter, more than perhaps any other in the New Testament, vexes me. What does it do for you? Let's take a couple of minutes, not very long, and talk back. <laughs>